in the highest. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to turn back to our study in the book of Acts here. So if you turn there, Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning, but we're going to read for our time this morning the first, let's see here, uh, five verses. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Lord, we pray that you would be blessed, glorified by the reading of your word. That's what we long to do here this morning is bring glory to your holy name and worship you exalt you, and uh, it's a privilege to do so. So again, we pray that you would uh, be blessed by this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, the title for the message this morning is Suffering and Saving and Smiting. Oh my. (laughs) And I think it's more than appropriate to say, oh my, when we come to a chapter like this. Uh, This 12th chapter is jam-packed with action and adventure, with shock and suspense, with all the excitement and drama of a blockbuster film. It's not every day that we get to see a brutal execution or a prison break and the smiting of a supposed demagogue, right? That might be my new favorite word, by the way, smiting. (laughs) Smite, smote, smiting. It's nice. It'll be something different in the next week's passage, but for this morning, a smiting. We'll see a smiting. This is quite the chapter here, and it's not typical for us to look at a full chapter at a time, but it has to be done today. has to be done. You'll you'll see why here in a moment. We have so much to get to this morning. I'm just going to dive right in here. Verse 1. Luke writes this. About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church... About that time. Luke says, about that time. About what time? Well, about that time that he just referenced in the preceding verses. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, what days are those? The days when Barnabas and Paul were serving the brand new church in Antioch of Syria. This dark, dark city in the Roman Empire, which saw the transformation and the unification of people from all backgrounds of life, both Jew and Greeks. When we say Greeks, we're talking about full-blown Gentile, pagan, Hellenistic men and women, now brought into the very same church of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Jews, Jesus Christ, who abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. He made peace, reconciling himself, reconciling them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's Ephesians 2. Now in these days, 
prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. Great famine. Luke says this took place in the days of Claudius. Now remember that name, Claudius. This is the same time period, the exact same time period referenced in our verse 1 here, confirmed even by secular historians that we'll hear from today, though not inspired themselves. But Luke was inspired, wasn't he? And Luke says, Agabus came uh, came to Antioch from Jerusalem and said, okay, there's a big famine coming. This great famine coming throughout all the known world. Hunger, starvation, economic collapse. Many, many people will suffer and die. So we read, the disciples in Antioch, these pagan, Gentile, those who were once considered unclean, common men and women, though now made clean and indwelled with the very same Spirit of God given to the Jews, these same men and women determined, determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And that's what they did. They sent it to the elders by the hands, hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So it's bad enough that you have this worldwide famine going on, this worldwide hunger. But now you have Herod Agrippa. That's who this king is, by the way. Herod Agrippa I. Now you have this king who determines that this is going to be a great time to really put some pressure on these so-called Christians. So that's the setting. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. But let's just look at the slaying here, the slaying. Luke, Luke writes in verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now this is pretty fascinating to me, honestly. Here we're shown one verse, uh, a single verse dedicated to the slaying of an apostle of Christ. Luke just says, the church in Jerusalem was suffering greatly. They needed support because of the famine, and they were suffering affliction at the hands of the king of Judea. He even killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then he just moves right along with the narrative. I mean, this is the apostle James here. Uh, this is one of the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. This is one of Jesus' inner circle. Remember, he always took along James and John, Peter. Now, Stephen who wasn't even an apostle, but he was just some Hellenistic Jew. He was first introduced in the, in the first quarter of Luke's account here. He got a whole two chapters. One of his sermons was published, canonized in Scripture for all time. His name would continue to be mentioned throughout the following chapters as his martyrdom was a catalyst and the, the spark which ignited the spread of the good news of the gospel, not only throughout Judea and Samaria, but throughout Cyprus and Phoenicia and Antioch, eventually to Rome herself, to the very ends of the earth. Now here in chapter 12, oh, by the way, James, the brother of John, had his head cut off. Well, thanks for the details there, Luke. Although I'm not too sure I'd want to hear the details of someone getting their head lopped off. You know, this wasn't really the clean beheading of a guillotine that came many centuries later. This was more of like an ISIS-style sawing with a dagger or... You know, maybe even an axe-to-the-neck type of decapitation. Anyhow, that's not the point. The point is, why does James only get one verse? Well, it just shows for us again that the Bible doesn't think too much of its heroes, does it? 
I mean, he had some time in the first letter throughout the Gospels. You remember our study in Mark last year? When they came up to him, came up to Jesus, these sons of Zebedee, James and John said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine saying that to him, by the way? Matthew said their mom went along with him and asked it. So much for the sons of thunder. (laughs) You know, the disciples pre-resurrection, they're always good for comments like this. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. We are able. Think about what James got to see as one of Jesus' closest disciples. You remember he was at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was at the raising of Jairus' daughter. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He got a first-hand view of Jesus praying in the garden. But now there's a huge fall from biblical prominence. Herod killed James, brother of John, with the sword. That's it. Okay, then. Well, Jesus said this would happen, didn't he? Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, Verse 2 tells us of this cup as James, the brother of John, was brutally executed just like his Lord. More on James' sudden removal from the earth in just a bit here. Now I want to turn your attention to the motivations behind the slaying. Point 2 in your outline, let's pick up here in verse 3. Luke writes, When Herod saw that this execution of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. First, I I want to focus on three things here, really, from this prison account. First, the politics of Herod then the prayer of the church, then the preservation of Peter. First, the politics of Herod. Luke said in verse 3, when Herod saw that the killing of the apostle James has pleased the Jews, that's the religious leaders and the Jews, the pious Jews of Jerusalem, when he saw that, he arrested Peter also. So a little background on Herod Agrippa here. I put his family tree on the back of your outline if you want to look at that. Uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great, who is not only famous for his restoration and rebuilding of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, but more infamously, he was the guy who killed all the male babies to and under when he heard the real king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem, a direct fulfillment of the prophet's words from seven centuries before. He killed all those babies. All those babies. Then he goes on to die himself. Now, Like all the other men and women of the Herodian dynasty, Herod the Great was a man consumed with paranoia. And and he had a somewhat warranted fear that those closest to him were always gunning for the throne, trying to usurp his authority, robbing him of his power in the process. And this led to Herod the Great's killing of many, 
many important people, including his very own son, Aristobulus. Okay? But not before he had a son, a son named Agrippa. And he's the very same Agrippa, Agrippa I, uh, that we're talking about here in Acts chapter 12. He's grandson of, the, of Herod the Great. And Agrippa, it's important to know, wasn't really the tyrant that Herod the Great was. He was more of a sleazy politician type. Okay? He was an evil man, to be sure, but not really a tyrant. He was kind of like the politicians or elected officials of our uh, time today here in America. He, he was bordering on tyranny. He's dabbling in tyranny, but generally speaking, he was just wicked and evil-hearted. He, he was appeasing certain people groups at the expense of others, all in hopes of remaining and retaining their temporary positions of human authority. Still goes on today. Here, the people that Agrippa was sought to appease was the Jewish leaders of Israel. And this makes sense, actually, because if you read about the background of Herod Agrippa, you'll know that he was enamored with the Jewish legal system and the ceremonial laws. Josephus said, he was zealous for the Mosaic rites, a bigot for the ceremonies. He was not only, as Herod Antipas was, tetrarch of Galilee, but had also the government of Judea committed to him by Claudius the emperor and resided most at Jerusalem where he was at this time. So he was zealous for the law of God. He was zealous for the ceremonial uh, law. He wanted to appease these Jews. He was kind of like a wannabe gang member. You know what a wannabe gang member is? That's my words, by the way, not Josephus. Uh, he's like a wannabe gang member, which if anybody knows anything about gang members, the wannabes are actually more dangerous than the actual thugs themselves because they'll do anything it takes to be cool. They'll do anything that it takes to gain the favor of the guys in the real gang. That's what Agrippa was. Agrippa was the guy who uh, sought the attention and the acceptance of the pious Jews of Jerusalem. So he used this authority given to him by Claudius to appease them and please them. He was trained to show off. I believe the kids today call it showing out. He was showing out. And what better way to show out? You didn't know that. Yeah. That was probably 20 years ago, but it, what better way to show out than to aid in the extermination of the Jews' greatest thorn, the Christ men? Remember, we read about him last week? Notice, he saw that it pleased not the God of Moses, not the God of Solomon, but who? The Jews. He arrested them also. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also. This, this really marks the nation's final and formal rejection of God, by the way. We'll move on to pro predominantly talk about Gentiles for the whole rest of the book of Acts. When he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He threw him in prison. He planned to take him before the people right then and there, but there was a big, bit of a hang-up. There was a bit of a, a stumbling block in his way, and that was the festival, a religious festival. He knew he had to wait till after Passover because Jewish law didn't allow for execution during the festival. I mean, unless you're the Messiah himself that's to be executed, then they can make an exception, but Herod didn't want to execute him in the festival week. Remember that Jesus told his disciples, you know that after two days Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, 
And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast. Why? Lest there be an uproar from the people. There was going to be a riot, an uproar from the people. There's eight days of this particular feast, so Herod would have to be patient with Peter, fully anticipating to bring him out on that final day, bring him before all the people, and have him executed right there. But what happens? Well, Luke says in verse 5, earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. The the church of God was praying for Peter. Praying for Peter. Uh, They were interceding for Peter. They were petitioning, petitioning the sovereign Lord of all creation for the release of Peter. This is an extremely important verse here. It shows this body of believers, these men and women in Jerusalem coming together at all hours of the night, as we'll see, praying for their brother in chains. And I'd like to think that the same would happen here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, You know, we haven't experienced this type of persecution yet. Uh, Yet, but we have ourselves some evil-hearted politicians today, don't we? Uh, Even some little mini-tyrants who are running this state. And uh, I'd like to think that any one of us, if any of us here today were arrested strictly because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this place here, or our houses, would be filled with people, filled, filled with saints, interceding for one another, pleading with God for their release. I'm obviously not hopeful that we, we face imprisonment here, but if and when we do, we should take notes from the church here when it comes to praying together. We should pray together. At least take notes on verse 5 here. Uh, their reaction to the prayers being answered is another story, as we'll soon see. But here they prayed earnestly. Uh, the the literal, literal translation is fervently. Uh, the, the, they were praying passionately. Prayer was boiling up out of them with a, with a feverish intensity. This, this is the very same word used to describe Jesus agonizing prayers in the garden. That's the kind of prayer that were, was coming from these men and women. John Stott said, I love this, Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. That's very good. So we've seen the politics, we've seen the prayer. Now let's look at the preservation of Peter. Verse 6 says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in that cell. He struck, or smote, Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what he was, was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. 
When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So unlike James, the Lord has preserved the earthly life of the apostle Peter. And again, some might say, well, why Peter and not James? Well, frankly, no one knows the answer to that question but the Lord, which is perfectly okay, right? In fact, it's a marvelous thing that he, know, uh, that he knows things that we don't know. That's what makes him God and us, well, not God. What we do know is that Peter were going to be used by the Lord in great ways, including being a, a major voice in the Jerusalem Council and writing two inspired epistles that we still glean from today, but why not First and Second James? Why not First and Second James, son of Zebedee? We know there's a book of James, but that was the half-brother of James, not the now decapitated apostle. So why was Peter's life spared? Boy, he got off easy, didn't he? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it, what your perspective is. You see, the reality is that as soon as James' heart pumped out that last burst of blood, he was immediately in the presence of the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. He was immediately in glory. Oh, while Peter had to trudge through a few more decades on this corrupted and cursed earth, fleeing persecution before being brutally executed himself. As tradition says, he was executed upside down, crucified upside down, excuse me. So, so if you have that perspective, the eternal perspective, which is the proper perspective if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, James was actually much better off than Peter. In fact, Peter was probably a little jealous that James had gone before him. Here he is in the cell, right? He's got four squads of soldiers. That's four squads of four men, meaning 16 guys are guarding this one Galilean fisherman on shifts, rotations. Not just one guy bound to, 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 he wasn't just bound to one soldier at a time, but between two guys, one on each hand. And his response to all this, look again at verse six. I love this. He was sleeping. Sleeping. Now, this is pretty common for Peter. Remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane? <laughs> Slept. The Mount of Transfiguration? Sleeping. Now here he is between two Roman guards. He's sawing logs. Now, I like to think that he slept with a peace that surpassed all understanding. Right? Right? He knew Jesus uh, told him he would live to be a young man. He, he would be an old man before he was killed. Truly, truly, I say to you, Simon Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So Peter's probably thinking, well, I'm not that old yet. I can still get around a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm going to make it through this thing. I'm just going to take a little nap. You guys, I'm just going to, you know, we see something similar with Paul in the, in the jail in Philippi, right? The Philippian jailer. He's singing hymns in the prison. Uh, Paul sings, Peter sleeps. Ah, oh, the bliss of spirit-given peace. Then comes an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Most High God, and he strikes him, actually smites him on the side. There's three different ver versions or uses for the word smite here. Okay, it can mean a divine striking with disease or affliction. It can be 
a furious, vengeful striking with a fatal blow, or as used here, a light or gentle touch. What a great word this is. The smiting. (laughs) Next time Lindsay asks me to wake the kids up, I'm going to say, well, I've been smiting them for five minutes. (laughs) They won't wake up. And I'm glad that she's in the service here because I don't want the police called on me. As she says, (laughs) what does smiting mean? The smiting of the angel. This angel smites Peter on the side and says, Peter, wake up. Wake up. Get dressed. Put your shoes on, Peter. Put your jacket on. Let's go now. And Peter, all all the while, he's thinking this is another vision like he just had on the rooftop in Joppa. He says, I'm seeing things. But here he goes. He gets up. He gets his shoes on. He gets his cloak on, and he goes right past the first guards. Then he goes right past the second guards. I don't know what these guys were doing. Were they caused to sleep? Were they just blinded when the chains fell off? I don't know what they were doing. But he follows this angel out into the iron gate, which miraculously opens of its own accord. Next thing you know, he's right back out on the streets. And look who gets the glory in verse 11. When Peter came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He saved me from the bloodlust of my own people who hate me. This is a miracle. Some people say it's not a miracle. I don't know how they come to that conclusion, frankly. This is a miracle. Now, verse 18 says this. When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So Herod's awakened by the report of Peter's escape. He marches down to the prison. He examines these 16 panicked soldiers who were responsible for watching over this Jew. And he has them killed when he finds out they had failed to secure the prisoner. That was the punishment for letting a prisoner escape. You know, you'd be charged and sentenced with the the very same thing the prisoner was. In this case, Peter was just hours away from execution. We just read that uh, Herod wanted to take him out that morning. But he escaped, therefore the guards themselves would be the the ones to face his punishment. So I guess Herod took after his granddaddy's tyrannical ways after all. Uh, that's, that's Herod. Let's go back to, to Peter, though. He, he's back on the streets. Immediately he goes to Mary's house, the mother of John Mark. That's the author of the Gospel of Mark. We'll discuss more about Mark in the coming chapters, but for now we're at his mom's place. Luke says the believers were gathered there, and what were they doing? Well, they were still praying. That's right. Verse 13, when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. She kept saying, Over and over and over, Peter is outside at the gate. And they kept saying, over and over and over, you are out of your mind. You're nuts, lady. He's in prison. Now, so much for these people expecting their prayers to be answered, right? What in the world were they praying for? What are they doing praying if they didn't expect God to answer their prayers? Well, 
They said, it's his angel. Now, according to Jewish superstition, everyone had an angel. Everyone had their own personal angel, a spiritual representative of themselves. Now, more commonly, they used this title for an actual living person who spoke on another person's behalf. That's what the word means, messenger. It's a messenger. Either way, none of them thought it was the actual Peter. Peter was supposed to be in prison. He may have already been beaten to the point of death like the Lord was. Surely this couldn't be Peter at the gate. But in verse 16, Peter kept knocking. And I can just see this. He's outside in the cold. This is ridiculous. And she's in there getting called nuts, and they're saying, no, that's not him. (laughs) None of them thought this was the the actual Peter. Um, He kept knocking, and Luke says, when they opened, when they finally got to it, they saw him. They were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand, he said, be silent. You can imagine the the excitement here of this reunion, the commotion over this. Here he is. And he says, okay, okay, calm down, calm down. I I don't want to end up right back in that cell there. And then look what happens at verse 17. He describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. You see that there? Not the angel, but the Lord. As has been said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was the Lord who fetched the angel. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This is James, the brother of Jesus, by this point a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Then he departed and he went to another place. We don't know exactly where immediately after this night, uh, but we're going to catch up with Peter later. I want to, you to know, look at the the next section here, verses 20 through 23. Let's see what happened to old Agrippa. Luke says this, verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. Remember, Tyre and Sidon was uh, the, the cities up the Mediterranean coast. This was the area known as Phoenicia. And he was really upset with the folks of these towns for some reason. Phoenicia belonged to Syria, and Herod actually had no authority there. But obviously, he had, he had some impact on the region because he provided food and supplies. Food and supplies, which were at this point apparently withheld from getting to the people. So the leaders of Tyre and Sidon needed to get on Herod's good side which is what they did by persuading Blastus, one of his officials, kind of like a personal butler, uh, to encourage the king to make peace at all costs. Uh, he says uh, uh, they, they persuaded Blastus. You know what that means, right? That means they, they made friends with Blastus. They uh, bribed Blastus is a better way to put that. And they bribed them to encourage Herod to make peace Luke then writes in verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now this is all the people, the leaders, that were now at quote-unquote peace with one another. He took his place on this throne, on this judgment seat, or bema seat in Caesarea, to give an address. Okay, now again, Joseph, the Jewish historian, gives us a bit more context of this day. He says, this appointed day was a feast 
to honor the Emperor Claudius, the Roman Emperor Claudius. This is the guy who made Herod the king over all the region, right? This is the same guy that was mentioned in the last part of Acts chapter 11. And Luke says that Herod put on his royal robes, which again, Josephus described. He says, on that day, Herod was arrayed in a silver garment which reflected radiantly when hit by the rays of the sun. And it was the appearance that caused the people to acclaim Herod a god. And Luke says the same thing, right? Verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. The, the flatters is what these people were called. They were crying out over and over and over. The voice of a god and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God, not a man. And rather than Herod saying, oh, 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 oh actually, no, no, please don't say that. I'm just a mere mortal here. No, nobody deserves the glory but the true God alone. Remember the one he claimed to worship? No, instead, Herod just took the praise and the glory for himself Herod, just like so many before him, uh, so many after him, was seeking the glory, or probably fairer in this context, receiving the glory that belongs to God and God alone. Again, this is not the first time this has happened, right? Remember King Uzziah, King Hezekiah. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel, through the power of God, interprets a couple dreams for this great king. He exhorts him, turn from your wicked ways, saying, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And the text says all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It happened, this prosperity. But then, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Same thing as Herod here. He was receiving the glory, taking the glory, assuming the glory, the exaltation and the praise that belonged to God and God alone. Josephus said that Herod did neither rebuke these people nor reject their impious flattery. Now, if you can remember about Nebuchadnezzar, his self-glorification brought an immediate, immediate humiliation. The text says he was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He, however, was graciously restored and gave glory to God. Remember? He said, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will. I love it. 
He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now we're talking. We could use a dose of this in American evangelicalism where we're constantly questioning God. He could never do that. What do you mean he does this and not that? I don't understand that. Again, (laughs) while, notice this, while Nebuchadnezzar's glory robbing resulted in his restoration, Herod's glory uh, robbing resulted in his expiration. Okay, Herod's reception of the glory ended up being a death sentence. Luke says in verse 23, immediately, immediately an angel of the Lord smote him, struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. He breathed his last. I like the King James there. He was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Gave up the ghost, his everlasting soul. Now, it's important to note here, Luke says that the angel of the Lord smote him immediately. But that doesn't mean he keeled over and died immediately, carcass consumed with worms immediately. Likely, it means that the angel smote him with an affliction by causing a decay within his body to the point where worms engulfed his innards. Now, listen to this. Again, Josephus, not inspired, but still interesting to consider. Listen to this. His entrails were also exulcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. Nay, further, his private member was putrefied. It was putrefied and produced worms. When he sat upright, he had difficulty breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of its return. So he's sitting there, and it's just, it, he's just like, he reeks. He also had convulsions in in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The voice of a God and not a man. (sighs) Josephus said Herod didn't die till five days after taking his place on the judgment seat and delivering this oration. I don't see any reason to doubt that. Again, this is nothing new, okay? The self-exaltation, the self-glorification, Nebuchadnezzar in the 7th century B.C., Herod here in the 1st century Palestine. Think of today, good night, even closer to home. Uh, We're living in a society right now where people love to exalt themselves and honor themselves and place themselves in the position of God, right? Uh, Amen. (laughs) Presidents, governors, Senators, state and local representatives, school boards recently, federal, state, county judges, even preachers, religious leaders, influencers, celebrities, movie stars, musicians, athletes. Oh, athletes is a big one. You know, there's a basketball player out there right in L.A. right now who calls himself the king. The king. He gave himself that nickname. He has, uh, do we have that picture there? Chosen one, tattooed on his back. The chosen one. He's adored by millions of people, worshipped by millions and millions of people all around the world. And for what? 
He can put a little inflated leather ball into a, a sphere better than most people can. <laughs> and people just bow down. I, I mean, the examples could go on uh, day, day and day on in today's culture here. They, we could just be here all day talking about it. And while the Lord may not choose to smite these folks the very moment they act with such arrogance, we do need to understand that they will at some point, whether in this life or the next life, give an account for their self-glorification, their self-exaltation above other people. Perhaps no greater example of this type of haughtiness is a time that hasn't even happened yet, a time at the end of the world. At the end of the world, when the one they call Antichrist, this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, who will come and exalt himself, not only to the people as their God, but over and over, over and above all the other so-called gods of that time and place, what will happen to such a man who, and all who worship him as God? Well, what will happen is the real God will show up. Okay? Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed with fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to what? Strike down or smite (laughs) the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not just a tattoo on the back. And the beast was captured. With it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. (coughs) Beasts of the field worms of the gut, birds gorging on the flesh, ultimately eternal torment in hell apart from the love and common graces of our Creator awaits those who just don't seem to grasp the reality that no mere mortal deserves even an inkling, just the tiniest bit of glory. We deserve nothing. We deserve no exaltation. We deserve no recognition, no praise, no glory, no propping up in this life. That's an honor reserved for the great I am and the great I am alone. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. 
For how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Oh, if you hear my voice today, be quick to put away your pride. We, we must all watch for the vipers of pride and self-righteousness which seek up, sneak up out of the weeds of human achievement only to inject our flesh with its, its destructive venom. An old-time preacher said this, pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its, its root grows deep, only a little left behind. It sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks and it's, it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness, even. The Lord says many, many things about pride in his scriptures, many, many things. Most notably that he hates it. He he abhors the prideful man or woman because human pride is the primary cause of their unwillingness to bend the knee to the true king of kings and the true Lord of lords, Lord of lords. So that's the smiting of Herod. And after all that, I want you to look at how Luke closes this chapter, really this key section of the book of Acts. <coughs> this is another summary statement. <coughs> Excuse me, we've seen this in our time together. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Now here in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, went back to Antioch, when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I want you to think back to James in verse 2. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is what? Forever. Forever. For almost 2,000 years now, wicked rulers like Herod and Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, have tried to stomp out the word of God. But it continues, even to this day, to increase and multiply. Many men over the centuries have tried to place themselves in the position of the Lord. They fade. Their word perishes with them. But the word of the sovereign Lord of all creation continues to increase and multiply. And his church continues to grow. And many are continuing to be added to the Lord as the word of God continues to increase and multiply, even to this morning right here in Lakewood, Colorado. Now, if you've never known this, this peace, which surpasses all understanding, this peace with your creator experienced by James and Peter and the men and women of the Church of Jerusalem and all believers since then, if you've never experienced this peace, I would invite you to cry out to the Lord this morning. 
cry out to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Cry out and ask, you, ask him to reconcile you to himself, to, to cleanse you of your impurity, your unrighteousness, your sin. Beg him to wash you as, as white as snow. Ask him to save you by his grace alone, through faith alone in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of the, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I would, I would implore you to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He is willing and able to forgive you of all your transgressions, to reconcile you to himself by his grace alone so that you can live out the rest of your life here on earth with that same eternal perspective, that proper perspective. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen? Amen. Pray with me now and We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.